Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy and find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about... Stoic practices from Epictetus's Enchiridion, and that might sound like a little bit of a mouthful, so we probably have a little bit of explaining to do at the top of this show. You know, I think we should probably spend a little bit of time, Dan and I are both members of the Milwaukee Stoic Fellowship, so we can tell you about what what Stoicism is, and then we have to tell you a little bit about this Epictetus guy, why we're talking about him, you know, what's so important, and then, you know, we already got another technical term in there, Enchiridion, what's that? So we got a little bit of stuff ahead of us, but we've got some really cool practices that you can use to start improving your life. And we're going to spend almost the entire session outlining these, talking about how you would understand them and and apply them. So let's start at the start. Dan, what's Stoicism? Stoicism is a philosophy, usually referred to as a philosophy of life, in which it uh, is a practice philosophy, so it incorporates both et- ethics as well as logic, and if you want to go back to the ancients, it includes like physics, which would consider like if you want to use the the, the modern term for that, be like both uh, science, but also like ontology or like the what is in everything. But um, uh, once again, it's it's an ancient philosophy founded in Athens by Zeno of Sidium, um, and it is kind of an amalgamation of a couple of other um, philosophies um, still in the the uh, uh, lineage of you know following Socrates, um, and uh, has little bits of you know the um, cynics, the Magatheans, and the um, the uh, academics, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, they kind of the, got the triple whammy, right? They got three different uh, strains flowing in, mm-hmm. so that's good. And and the handbook or the Enchiridion, as we are calling it, is um the the piece of uh work that we have that is the distilled teachings of Epictetus, um, but they're not written by Epictetus, they are written by one of his students, this guy named Aaron. Um, and so, uh, you know, can we go through the, the etymology of uh, the uh, Enchiridion here? Yeah, so it's um, basically three things to it. There's the N in, right? And then Ker is hand in, in classic Greek. Um, so in your hand, and then the idion is just a diminutive, so the little thing that goes in your hand. And by the way, Epictetus isn't the only person to write something that's called the Enchiridion. Um, Augustine of Hippo would later write an Enchiridion, and there, there's quite a few other authors. And it, it's the same basic idea. It's sort of like what you can... I mean, you know how we, we, we used to have these these... Um, paperbacks that you could buy all over the place and you could stick them in your back pocket so you could, you know, go read your book wherever you wanted to. This is kind of like that, except, you know, I don't know that they actually had pockets or anything back then, <laughs> but, but you could have it with you. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's, ve- it's very short and it's got a number of 
you could call them selections taken from the longer discourses that Arian Epictetus's student who you mentioned wrote down and then, you know, selected bits and pieces of. Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, Epictetus himself, as far as we know, didn't didn't look it over and say, yeah, that one should go in, that one should go out. But, you know, if Arian was a good, smart student, presumably this is kind of the best hits, right? Right. So I don't know if you if you happen to be watching the video, it's it's literally this. It's ten pages in this book on uh, of yeah, it's epic. incredibly short. Yeah, and, and, and so like I'm thinking of like a pocket scroll. If we want to go to like what do they have at the time? You're just well, like this little thing. You know, so that's an interesting point. So so there a lot of the ancient literature. You know, you see book one, book two. Those are actually scrolls that would be unrolled. So. Around this time, they were starting to have um, what they call labellum, a little tiny book that's like the books that we have, that that pages sewn together into uh, one thing. And the Enchiridion probably circulated around in both both formats. Mm-hmm. You know, people would use those um, labella, I guess would be the the uh, proper plural for it. And they, the Stoics were especially big on, you know, figuring out what you'd screwed up in during the day and how you could improve and keeping track of things, you know, what we call journaling today, mm-hmm. right? And you would write that down in your little labellum that you would carry around with you. And so it, it could be that, that the Enchiridion was available in two formats. We don't, we don't quite know. <laughs> You know, um, the important thing is that we do have it and thus yeah, we can actually and, talk about it. You know, and we should mention this. Um, you can get it. Dan was referencing a copy that has the Epictetus's discourses and the Enchiridion and fragments and probably a nice introduction by the translators. And there's a lot of different versions out there that you can buy. But you can also find this incredibly easily online. Mm-hmm. So if you're short on money, you don't have, you know, five or ten bucks to shell out for uh, an actual copy, you can have this anywhere you want to. You could read it on your phone. Um, there's all sorts of formats and translations of it. There's even a website that has uh, three to four different translations side oh, by side. Which I've I find seen that. That's kind of cool. What, so tell me why you like that in particular. Um, well, I don't read Greek, unlike Greg here. And so it's useful to um, see the different ways that the different translators have translated this. Um, they uh, kind of, if you look at like the the totality of it, you can like, okay, and I'm not quite understanding what this um, translator is trying to convey here. Maybe someone else says it in a little bit more um, understandable, uh, grokkable uh, language. Yeah, I th- and I think that's a great way to use these things. If you find one translation doesn't work for you, it's not like there's anything wrong with you. Um, different translations are, you know... Um, Good for one one set of people, but not good for another set of people. There's no like perfect universal translation, so having four of them side by side can be really handy. Yeah. Um. So I guess what we talked a little bit about what stoicism is, um, what is not stoicism. So maybe let's kind of go into some of like the the really high end, like what what is stoicism? It is a um for the most part we we talk about it in its ethical system, um. And I will often say that um, that stoicism is a pro-social um, ethical system that uh, 
has a lot of work in it to try to um, help you understand yourself, your, the way that you think, um, the way that you um, interact with other people and the world, and um, and one of the big things that are usually thrown against Stoicism is that this is this uh, push down and and bottle up your emotions type thing, where in fact it is very much a um, uh, philosophy that tries to get you to understand your emotions, why they happen in the first place, to not to bottle them, but but to um, know what they are and to not allow them to uh, take you along for a ride. Yeah, and the Stoics do say that there are good emotions. So anybody who tries to say, oh, Stoics, they're totally unemotional, they don't, they don't understand Stoicism. But you notice that in the way that they understand good emotions, it, there's always a, an interconnection between rationality and our emotional side. So, uh, you know, this, is, this isn't one of the practices that we want to talk about here yet. But this is a, a good example. Um, should you feel fear, right? Fear is a bad emotion for the Stoics in general. And there's a lot of different kinds of fear. But there also is feeling fear in a rational way, which they, they call in Greek, eulabeia, which means caution, being, being cautious or careful about stuff. So, you know, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't just do anything whatsoever to show what a tough guy you are. That's not being stoic. There are some things you really should fear. If somebody's like, hey, poke this needle in your eye, ah, you should be afraid of that. <laughs> like, you shouldn't be afraid of the dark. But if you have kids that have Legos, then you should be very cautious about walking in the dark. That's a great example. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> Somebody was proposing recently that there should be like a room just full of Legos. And I was like, well, you know, that sounds really great from a building perspective. But now imagine trying to walk through that in the dark. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Although, like, if you have enough of them, is it kind of like one of those needle beds where the, the oh, the pain is, is uh divided up in such a, a great amount that it... I mean maybe but that sounds like a great experiment for somebody else to try not not me I agree let someone else <laughs> so um, we're gonna talk about philosophical practices and if you haven't heard that term before that's that's quite fine there are other synonyms that get used for that sometimes they're called spiritual exercises that's the terminology that this guy Pierre Adot particularly uses. Um, Michel Foucault has this wonderful phrase, technologies of the self. And there's, there's a lot of other ways that these are talked about. But the basic idea is there are things that you choose to do. So there's a deliberate aspect to it. And you, you don't just do them once. You do them perhaps in particular situations or you do them before you get into situations like a daily thing. And if you keep on doing them, they improve your life. They, they change the way you think about things. They change your emotional reactions. They change, uh, your, your habits and assumptions and eventually lead you towards a happier, more tranquil and more free life. Right. Um, and so I want to enter into this, uh, discussion, the idea of praxis, which is, a practice that is informed by theory. And one of the things that um, we find with this, these practices that we are talking about is that the, the more you do them, um, the, the more they become ingrained, and so it, it reduces your reaction time to, you know, 
becoming angry or something in one thing. And so that uh, you now having this new uh, way that you've trained yourself through this practice allows you to understand a little bit better what the actual theory behind this was in the first place, which allows you to do the practice a little bit better thereafter. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not, you know, we like to say they're not cookie cutter menu things or bullet points or life hacks where you, you can get the totality of it just within, you know, a day or something. There's a dialectic here. The more that you do it, the more that you're actually doing action and practice and habit and stuff like that, the more the theoretical explanation of it, or as we're going to talk about some of these, you know, passages from Epictetus, the more sense they make. And Mm -hmm. it's not as if the sense wasn't there all the time. It's just, you know, we often don't, we don't grasp these things right away. And that's, and that's perfectly normal. Yeah. We, we don't have the experience. And so like, I don't know, um, what it is to the feeling of skydiving. I have an idea of what it is and what it entails. <laughs> Nor do I, because that, that ain't going to happen with me. I've got a fear of heights, you know? And, uh, you know, this is a bit of off topic, but I used to play Minecraft with my kids. Mm-hmm. And in Minecraft, it's, um, you know, the graphics are not great, but it's enough that I could get vertigo being on top of a high place and like looking down, you know, I could feel like that sense inside me of uh, the fear of uh, falling off. And every once in a while I I would. And then of course, you know, your character dies and you had to go back and get all their stuff. But in real life, you know, you fall off a high place or, you know, skydive off a high place. And then you're just there in the air. That, that's definitely an experience (laughs) and imagining it for me is already enough for me to say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Who knows? Maybe if I actually did do it, it wouldn't be quite so bad. (laughs) Um, in real life. Yeah. Who knows? Like uh, doing those, uh, jumps are rather, I don't know. It does seem scary to me, but I know people do them all the time. Uh, There's, uh, I guess, a science to it to a certain extent. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I, and and if I was going to read a book on skydiving and the techniques therein, um, especially of like moving one's body in order to you know uh, move through space in a different way to do somersaults to like, yeah yeah what all these things I I can read about them but doing them is going to allow me to really understand what they're saying much more than uh, just kind of like creating a, a idea in my mind's eye. Yeah, that's that's a great example. I mean, you could say the same thing about like martial arts. You can get these picture books that show you all sorts of moves and stuff like that. But until you're actually like doing the stuff, you don't know. I mean, the, the pictures look cool, but you don't know what, what's actually going on and how to move your body in the right way. So that's that's a great metaphor for what we're what we're doing in um, spiritual exercises or philosophical practices, however you want to call them. So let, let's jump right into the, the first one. Um, one of the really foundational practices and ideas in Stoicism comes from Epictetus's Enchiridion, and it comes from chapter one. We call it the dichotomy of control, which is not his term, but it is, uh, it's 
a good descriptor. So here's a passage from chapter one. He says, some things are under our control while others are not under our control. Under our control are conception, choice, desire, aversion, and in a word, everything that is our own doing. Not under our control are our body, our property, reputation, office, and in a word, everything that is not our own doing. So he's making a distinction there. And now here's where the practice comes in. Remember, therefore, that if what is naturally slavish you think to be free and what is not your own to be your own, you will be hampered. You will grieve, you will be in turmoil, and you will blame both gods and human beings. While if you think only what is your own to be your own and what is not your own to be as it really is, not your own, no one will ever be able to exert compulsion on you. No one will hinder you. You will blame no one. You will find fault with no one. You will do absolutely nothing against your will. You will have no personal enemy. No one will harm you, for neither is there any harm that can touch you. And so this may sound kind of paradoxical to a lot of people, especially the thing like oh, your body isn't under your, under your control. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Epictetus is saying there's things that you you can completely determine. And then there's other things that get determined by factors outside of, of you. You know, so it could be other people. It could be, you know, the environment. It could also be inside of you. And it could be like the, the screwed up things that you learn from school or your parents or your, your, your dumb friends or, you know, the culture. Pick, pick whatever or your own, your own boneheaded uh, uh, inferences from what's happened in your life, right? But Epictetus is saying um, you actually have a lot more control over the things that are within that sphere uh, than you you credit yourself for. And then the other stuff, you, you don't actually have control over it. So if we apply this, and that's the practice, remember, he says. And whenever somebody like Epictetus says, remember, keep keep at hand, be ready to say, there you've got a practice. So we can start, you know, shifting ourselves, and it takes time, from being so invested in the things that are not in our control. Or, or we can, you know, we can still be connected to them. But if we say to, our, to ourselves, hey, that's not in my control, then we're not going to get so upset about it. Like, for example, I, I've had COVID lately, right? Totally out of my control. I, I, I got caught up in that big wave of people who got the vaccinations, were careful about things, wore masks, you know, at the right time and all that. And, you know, I thought I had allergies and boom, it turns out I have COVID, right? And, you know, I was like a lot of people, I mean, very fortunate it was this milder Omicron thing that doesn't like, you know, destroy your lungs or destroy your brain, uh, at least in most cases. Um, and it sucked. And, you know, we had to isolate here. That's no fun. And I'm still, you know, feeling some effects of it. I, I don't have control over that. What I do have control over is how I think about it, what I do in relation to it. Do I say, oh, this is the end of the world, you know, or do I deny that I have it? Oh, I can't possibly have COVID. I'm vaccinated, you know. Um, you know, these these are all things that are up to me. And so being prudent in what we do with, with, with what is up to us, that's a really, really central part of this practice. I mean, what do you want to add to this, this one, Dan? 
one of the things that I usually like to add, just especially for someone that's new to this, is those things that are entirely, totally up to us. Um, because people are just like, oh, well, I have uh, influence over this person. I can go and talk to yeah, them yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and get them to do what I want. But um, you have control over talking to them. You right. don't have any control over the the all the other things that they're thinking about and what they are actually going to do. Uh, a at any point could decide that you know you're full of it and they don't want to do the thing that you want to do. And this is the the point that we all live in this world in which the vast majority of the things that we do have a, one component of things that is totally under our control and one component of things that are not under our control. And it's yeah, yeah. the the size of these two things that will eventually determine our outcome. If, if there are, you know, um, say, uh, I want to um, influence NASA, but I'm not in NASA, and I'm not a, <laughs> a rocket scientist. I can go out and like wave a f- sign outside of NASA or outside of Congress to try to influence them, but by action, I have control over like at least moving towards that action. Yeah, yeah. There's so many other factors out here that are going to be overriding that, that my influence is going to be nil. And so, like, here's my action. I have control over my action. But it doesn't mean that the outcome is going to change because of me focusing on that. Yeah, I mean, we can apply that to so many things where we think, if I do this, like, if I push this button, then this thing over here will happen. And human beings aren't like that. I mean, we, we do know how to push each other's buttons in the mm-hmm. sense of, like, take each other off. But even that might not work, you know? Maybe the Especially person if you're is, a stoic. Well, I'm thinking, like, if the other person is becoming not necessarily stoic, but at least better, you know, better at managing their emotions – um, maybe you poking them isn't going to provoke what you, you want. But, I mean, people get this mixed up all the time. And so this is something where we would have to continually remind ourselves um, in real-life situations and maybe also before we get into situations so we're not letting our expectations or, as Epictetus would say, our desire run away um, with us so we, we don't end up getting upset as a result. Right. Um, we've got, uh, so I guess, maybe some of the other things um, on the the issues that people will have are the, the focusing only mm-hmm. on on the individual things that you can do and, and kind of like screwing or, or dismissing everything else outside of oneself. Yeah, there's a tendency sometimes when people read this to think, oh, I should like totally withdraw from withdraw myself from all of reality, including other people. Epictetus isn't saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as you pointed out, Stoicism is a pro-social uh, philosophy, and Epictetus is really big on like fulfilling the rules that we've undertaken. So, like, you know, I don't get to say to my wife, 
Um, if I'm doing something that is annoying her, oh, well, that's totally outside of the sphere of my control, honey. You know, that's, that's, Epictetus would say, no, 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 you're screwing up there, buddy. Um, you're misunderstanding it. Uh, you know, another thing, too, is sometimes people will say, yeah, but I don't really control my thoughts. You know, I have intrusive thoughts that happen. I don't I don't control my emotions the way Epictetus seems to be saying that you do. I can't control what I desire or am averse to. But we can like bump it up a level and say, okay, yeah, that's probably true. Like, you know, at least when you're starting out, you're going to have things that you uh, you might obsess about. But you get to decide how much you obsess about it and what you do in relation to that obsessing. Do you just give in to it or do you say, this isn't good for me. I need to like do something about this, you know? And so this comes down to one of these other things we were talking about in what's under our control are our desires. And, yeah, and we, yeah. we are obviously, you know, bombarded with, you know, parts of our brain that says, Hey, get that, get that, get that. <laughs> Um, and and some things are definitely good to like pursue, like you know, food and water. Probably good things to you know, regularly pursue. Um, if you you know, especially if you want to continue living. Um, but there, um, we do have the ability to look at these desires as they arise in us and yeah. say, are these things that are something that I actually want to desire? If I'm looking at this through kind of a rational lens, what are the uh, conclusions of me wanting to desire these things and um, as we'll get into a little bit more but like this this difference between what is actually a good um and stoicism says yeah, the things yeah. that are good are not you know things like these all these things that are indifference here our our health externals our, yeah um our uh wealth our privilege um you know reputation all, yeah. all these things um and if you are desiring these things over being a good person, then there is an issue there. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I think realizing that the feelings or desires that we have are not just like stuff that we're subjected to and we can't do anything about, but we we have some say in it. That's incredibly liberating and powerful. And I think not enough people get that message they're, they're told you're responsible for your desires and that's why you're the you know terrible person you are. But they're not told, hey, you can actually, not like by snapping your fingers, but you can go in under the hood and monkey around with the, the mechanics of things and change them over time. You know, that's quite helpful. Well, let's talk about the next one. Um, why don't you lead us into this one? Because this is one that, that, that you picked out, Dan. Yes, this is uh, a loving fate, or uh, Um So, do not ask things to happen as you wish, but wish them to happen as they do happen, and your life will go smoothly. And so this is uh, another way of saying, um, you know, uh, happiness is uh, reality, or uh, expect, uh, was it reality minus expectations? Okay. Yeah, yeah, or rolling with the punches, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, we, we've got this idea here that um, once that there are disturbing things that we are disturbed by the the incongruity or like the, the mismatching between what we want and what is in the world. And so like I can want a, um, a Ferrari outside, um, but... 
doesn't mean that it's going to be out there. And if I want it and it's not out there, then I'm upset that it's not out there. You yeah. Know, ah, I have to have my Ferrari. You know, like it's, um, I just got a Toyota, so like, um, <laughs> which is a fine car, but I'd also be like, you could get I, some I, Ferrari decals or something. Yeah, but I, I was thinking more along the lines of if someone happens to steal my car, and I go outside and I see my car is there, and I'm wanting my car to be there, I'm going to be disturbed. I'm going that's going to probably elicit anger, um, uh, in the the fact that the car is not there anymore yeah. and um especially because you're like you'll, you'll you're gonna run through a thousand different things oh that means i can't do this and i have to do this and i have to call the police and i have to you know all these things or maybe you got towed and all these things that you're like ah i don't want to do um but if you're like okay i can sit here and say i could really really desire this and i'm gonna get angry at that instead you're like okay the car is not there what does one do next? Exactly, what does yeah. a um, an excellent person in this situation do? Do they yell and rant and rave and they get <laughs> angry at their their friends and their loved ones because yeah. this thing happened? Or do they like, okay, here are the things that I need to do to either get my car back or to call up my insurance or what are all these things and <clears throat> and maintain this this calmness that is in that person for that. Yeah. You know, I think this, so there's all those like things that we find blows, you know, or um, challenges, however we want to put them, right? Uh, We want things to be this way and they're the opposite. You want your car to be there, it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You want to be healthy, you're sick, right? And then there's all sorts of other cases I think you could apply this to where, it's, you know, there's the proverbial fly in the ointment. Like when you go to a concert, you know, you've, you've, you've got your tickets. You're like, oh, I'm going to see this band. So great example. Um, for my birthday weekend, uh, my wife bought Duran Duran tickets. And I'm, you know, I'm a big metalhead, but Duran Duran has been like my one of my you know secret loves since I was a kid, you know love their music uh and it's 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 great stuff and i'm i'm really looking forward to it now what happens at concerts you know i mean you're not going to be having the ideal perfect concert experience uh it was in in the case of simon lebon he's not going to be like pointing out at the crowd at you singing directly to you you know and people are going to like get in the way they're going to stand up and have their cell phones like hanging up and be videoing it there's going to be some jerks who are like drunk or high or whatever and they're going to like they're going to get up to get another beer every so often and and um then there's going to be some people like having conversations on the side and chatting and you know maybe maybe not everybody's you know uh, got the best personal hygiene and it stinks a bit or pick pick whatever you want right there's always going to be these things or you sit in the seats and they're not all that comfortable. You know? So, you know, you can you can say, well, what is it that I was looking for here? I'm looking to go to a concert and this is what concerts are like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't have to allow these things to ruin my night. I can still hear the band. And, you know, what if the band is out of tune? Well, you know, that happens. You know? 
I, I I've gone to concerts where the the lead singer was drunk and forgot the words, and it's like, well, <laughs> what do you? He's a rock star. What are you expecting? Like these are the things that happen at rock shows. Yeah, quite true. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like what what is what are you expecting to you know this is um. What expectations refer- are you bringing to it? Right, is, is and the yeah. um, uh, there's a, another um, kind of idea is to live the life um, every day as if it's a festival. And you go to a big festival with lots of people expecting to get bumped into, to, you know, uh, and instead of getting angry at these things, okay, well, at a festival, these are the things that happen. And if you can s- say, like, yeah. you know, in all times that you should say like, okay, well, things are going to happen and that's just the way things are. It's okay. And it's how you react to these things. That's the more important thing than we're starting to uh, love fate in, in every moment around us. You know, I was just thinking, because uh, Epictetus uses that that uh, metaphor of the festival. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the festival, not everybody's going to, like, want to talk philosophy. <laughs> Maybe they're, they're just there to going to have a good time. And I was thinking, you know, I, I think my mind wandered a little bit. I was thinking about, so I've been teaching now. I've been teaching since 1999 college classes. And, um, you know, you design a class. At before the semester begins, it never ever turns out the way you think it's going to go. In any given class session, some students are paying attention some of the time, some other aren't, and they ask you, you know, questions that show that they're not a hundred percent on. Anybody who's seen my videos will will, you know, that were recorded in classes can see that. And if you let yourself get bent out of shape over that. And there's a lot of people who teach who do, you know, it's got to stay to the lesson plan. Well, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for being unhappy. Um, it's, it's not reasonable. It's, it's, right. uh, kind of silly. Right. Um, so another, uh, things that like similar to one of the, the issues that we t- brought up with the, our last practice of the dichotomy of control is this idea of this kind of like potential nihilistic crap. If you're like, okay, um, one, it's outside of my control, so I'm not going to just, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, step away from it. Doesn't matter. Um, also like loving fate and it's like, okay, well, um, the, the first point is that you need to love the, the thing that you are, instead of having unreasonable uh, expectations of the world around mm. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you go into this too hard to just like, well, I'm going to love exactly what is, um, then you, you do nothing. You know, like there, there has to be another thing that goes beyond that. You This loving fate gets you a point of um, ex, uh, to fully accept the reality of the situation. And then... The, the point after that is to actually take action of what, what as we call in uh, Stoicism, virtue, otherwise translated as, as excellent action for a human with your role um, in that place of time. What are you going to actually do? So you're saying it would be a mistake to take this as like the one single practice for Stoicism. Right. right? It, it's it's a, a practice that has to be fitted in with other ones. Um, and since we are talking about Epictetus, maybe I'll, I'll have a slight aside to his pedagogical um, uh, workings of the uh, disciplines that he has. He has the discipline okay. of ascent, the discipline of action, and the discipline of uh, desire. Desire, thank you. 
Um, and so we we already talked a little bit about um, uh, desire first with the uh, dichotomy of control. What what are the things that are actually valuable? Um, we use the dichotomy of control to help us figure out what things are actually valuable. We assent to the reality of the situation by you know uh, figuring out tools that allow us to understand the world well. Um, and one of these things is um, looking at the world through a um, amor fati, uh, to to love life or to uh, love fate, to see the world as it is and not uh, with like a rose colored. Wouldn't it be great if I had this type of way on it? And yeah. then and then the last part, <clears throat> and they they you know talk about this as like a tripod that without all three parts it would not stand is that there's also that portion of action. What do you do next with this information, with these right judgments, and uh, having a really good understanding of the world around you? Now, um, you are involved in startup culture, mm -hmm. and that seems like something where, I mean, that the dichotomy of control seems to be something that would be very helpful in that because there's so few things that are actually in your control and yet there's so many things that you do need to do. Mm -hmm. What about um, loving your, your fate? Does that fit in with it? I mean, wouldn't it introduce a kind of passivity where you're like, well, I mean, maybe investors will invest, maybe they won't. It, it wouldn't do that, would it? Well, it's, it's a little bit of that, that nihilistic trap. Um, but, you know, this is actually... Um, absolutely. Like only uh, you know, one in twenty or about five percent of startups actually make it to the point where there Ooh. is either that's right become, becomes a going thing or um, they get acquired. And um, this is actually something that's really useful because <clears throat> you have such low um, probability that it's going to actually happen in the long run. That it's like okay, well, now what? Um, I. It, it failed. I worked as hard as I could. My, I have my action. I realize that there's a small amount of insurance. I'm trying to do this thing. There is, you know, people out there are trying to help you to do these things. Um, people are, are counting on you to do these things, and you do them as well as you can. But once again, you know, there's so many things outside my control. Okay, accept that. And if it does fail, even though, especially because there's such a high chance of it failing, yeah. say, you know, those things happen. That is okay. What you did know, I learn from this? What can I do next? It occurs to me that this would apply really well to um, being a fan of a sports team. <clears throat> you know, uh, particularly, I mean, it could be college, it could be mm -hmm. professional, it could be amateur, whatever. So just think about the NFL, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, unless you're like a fair weather fan, like all the people who were Cowboys fans here in Wisconsin in the 1980s when the Cowboys were hot, you know, um, you're probably a Packers fan. And the Packers have been pretty decent for, you know, a, a decade and a half, maybe, maybe two decades with the Favre and the, the Rodgers era. Um, but, you know, that's going to come to an end eventually. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have any great, you know, new quarterback uh, ready to step in. And there's always problems. And, you know, I grew up in, in the 70s and the 80s when the Packers, they did have a few winning seasons, but mostly they were just terrible, <clears throat> you know. And you can say, well, um, I want my team to go to the Super Bowl and, and win the Super Bowl. 
And she, well, you can desire that all you want, but you know, there's a lot of teams in the league. <laughs> so the odds, of, the odds of your team any given year, unless we're talking about like, you know, when it, the Patriots were dominating everything mm-hmm. year after year after year, which is kind of a weird fluke. Um, the odds are pretty low, you know, it's mm-hmm. sort of like a, a startup, except of course, there's a hell of a lot less work involved in being a sports fan than there is in being involved in a startup. Right? You can just sit out, sit back on your butt and watch the TV and, you know, yell yeah. at the yell at the screen every once in a while. But you know, once again, you said you know there's one in 32 teams. You know, there's obviously greater like <laughs> movement going on there and a whole bunch of other places. But um, maybe um. Here's a, another little quote to uh, kind of wet our whistle here. Um, so day by day, you must keep before your eyes death and exile and everything that seems terrible, but death above all. And then you will never have any abject thought or desire anything beyond due measure. So how, so, does, that, how does that fit in with uh, Amor Fati or Love of Fate? Um, so this is, I guess, a little bit of pulling into uh, like this premeditato malorum or thinking about bad things before they happen but especially like it's it's trying to get you to love the the reality of things like you you can Mm. um you know uh death and exile and anything that you think is terrible can come at you at any point in time and if you are not afraid of these things it becomes a lot easier for you to um desire the things that are because you think okay these things aren't actually bad in and of themselves it's only how we are reacting to them and allow us to more easily accept the reality of them that is a good segue into our next practice depersonalizing problems so i mean if you have a hard time thinking about the death of those close to you as being something that, you know, is is definitely not to be preferred, but it is an indifferent, then this might be helpful. So Epictetus says, this is in chapter 26, what the will of nature is may be learned from a consideration of the points in which we do not differ from each other. For example, when somebody else's servant breaks the drinking cup, you're instantly ready to say, well, that's one of the things that happened. Rest assured, then, when your own drinking cup gets broken, you ought to behave in the same way that you do when the other person's cup is broken. Now apply the same principle to matters of greater importance. Some some other person's child or spouse has died. Nobody would say anything other than, well, that's the fate of a human being. When a person's own child dies, immediately the cry is, alas, woe is me. But we ought to remember how we feel when we hear of the same misfortune befalling others. So, you know, what is Epictetus saying here? You know, realize that the same logic that you apply to other people, you can apply to yourself. You can take yourself out of the equation. Now, we do tend to think that like, well, but this is my my feelings. I'm exceptional. But that's a big assumption. I mean, the universe doesn't think you're exceptional, right? You're just one of, I mean, how many, there's more than 7 billion people here on the planet now. Um, That's an awful lot. You're just one little tiny blip. And if all the others, 
you know, when these things happen to them, you're like, well, that's the way it goes. You know, mm-hmm. you can apply that just as much to yourself. And so you can, you know, when you're experiencing something bad, like, oh, I, I lost a job. Well, what did you say when other people lost their job? You can remind yourself about how you, how, what, what stance you take towards that. And then you can, you know, apply it to your own condition. And you can also like, you can, you can kind of turn it in another way and say, well, how would other people look at what's happening to me? I mean, do they take it as much to heart as, as I do? And I kind of think when you do this, it helps you to feel a greater sense of confidence that you can handle the situation, you know, um, I mean, it's terrible when when your child dies, um, but people have that happen to them and it doesn't absolutely destroy them. Mm-hmm. Life still goes on, you know? Um, you know, when it's lesser stuff, you know, if your drinking cup gets broken, you might be very, very attached to your, your cup. But, hey, it's a cup, yeah. you know? Okay, I had a, um, a roommate who had a dog that uh, destroyed the mortarboard in which I graduated with. It's like <laughs> I can't get that back. It is gone now. But it was only ever, you know, some cloth and some cardboard and some elastic um in the first place. And Yeah, yeah. It's okay. You know, it like I still had the memories, I still had photos. It definitely got that uh diploma <laughs> going anywhere. Um so like at first, it was like I was upset, and now I'm like, okay, well, it was just was. It is the thing that happened, um, and if this happened to someone else, um, I probably would have been easier for me to say, at least, you know, depending on the my relationship with that person, mm. um, um, how I'd react to them, but I would probably make the judgment like, oh, well, it's it's just a thing, uh, yeah. And so, you know, Ed, Epictetus even says here, um in another part of the, the Enchiridion that, um, you know, see someone, you know, dis- in despair over, um, the loss of their child, um, go and be a human and, and like, can, uh, uh, comfort this person. Um, yeah. that's, that is fine. Be the human. Like if they're, they're not a stoic, it's fine. You don't need to go like, Oh, well, you should, you know, uh, not feel anything. You just uh, yeah, that's a terrible thing to do. You know, <laughs> to expect other people to be stoics, I think, is non-stoic. Right. Know? Um. But he says, like, you know, just don't despair yourself inwardly. You can, you can, you can be with him and help him out, but don't, don't also uh, try to gain those same things to despair over something that you know is, you know, uh, an indifferent. Yeah, and there's another um, really great passage that figures into another aspect of this in chapter five, where he says, um, death is nothing dreadful or else Socrates also would have thought so. But the judgment that death is dreadful, that's the dreadful thing. So when we're hindered or disturbed or grieved, let's not blame anyone but ourselves. And that means not like just blaming ourselves, like saying, oh, I'm such a such an idiot, you know. But he says, blame our own judgments. You know, look at that part of ourself that's giving us the wrong take on the situation. And the thing with Socrates and the death thing um, I mean, that can really give you uh, a way to handle situations. You can you can say, well, 
okay, I lost my job. That really sucks. You know, it's, it's not a great economy, um, but it, you know, it doesn't have to destroy my life and make me depressed because look at how that, that person over there who also lost their job is handling it. There's nothing necessary about making me feel depressed or despairing. And then you can say, well, I still do feel depressed or despairing. And then you can say, well, because it's not necessary, there's got to be something going on in in your way of looking at it that that other person's not doing. Maybe let's let's look a little bit more closely at that. And then um, once you disentangle it, maybe you don't have to be depressed or despairing, you know? Um, and so a little context here. Um, if so- uh, Socrates was um, oh, right. sentenced and um, and commit- unjustly, <laughs> unjustly um, uh, put on trial and then uh, for corrupting the youth of the city because he was out there like you know talking about like what is justice and and why should we like worship the gods and all these things he's just asking these things um and he's ordered to uh, drink hemlock and so he's even given an option by one of his friends to break him out of jail after he's been convicted to say hey you can go over here i've got a, a villa you can go stay at it you can i'll bring you to the next town you can go and talk to them and and be the gadfly over there it's fine uh, i mean it's like no like like i don't consider this sentence to be a, a bad thing i'm i'm acting virtuously here because i am upholding um the, the values of being a citizen of Athens. I'm going to yeah. adhere to the values that uh, I believe in, which is democracy. You know, and I think if you look at Socrates' death day, which we get in um, Plato's text, The Phaedo, um, he decides to spend it, you know, doing philosophy, chatting with his friends, consoling them and all that, that he's, you know, maybe his soul is going to live on. <clears throat> and there's a point where the jailer, who, the guy who has to prepare the hemlock, he's like, hey, uh, listen, buddy, you shouldn't be talking so much, you know, because that can get your body riled up. And and uh, then I might have to make a second you know, draft of, of hemlock. And Socrates is like, you know, I'm going to die today, so <laughs> I'm going to do what I want to do, which is talk with my friends. If you have to prepare a second draft of hemlock buddy you can just do your job that's not anything to me (laughs) and so i mean it shows kind of a good he's willing to like die but he's gonna die on his own terms he's not gonna be pushed around by the jailer or something like that you know he's gonna he's gonna go out uh in the way that he wants to and that shows us that that's possible for us too i mean maybe we won't do that because uh, we're not all Socrates, but it, it certainly shows that there's nothing necessary about um, the stances that we take very often. Mm-hmm. So we should we should talk about. Uh, I think we've got time for one more practice. Yeah. Um, this is one that you wanted to talk about. I think this is a great one too. Yeah, this is um, determining the value of a human. And so, uh, from uh, chapter 44, the Enchiridion, these arguments do not follow. I am richer than you, therefore I am superior to you. I am more eloquent than you, therefore I am superior to you. No, these are arguments that follow. I am richer than you, therefore my property is superior to yours. I am more eloquent than you, therefore my style is 
is superior to yours. But you, after all, are neither property nor style. And so what we have here is, you know, once again, it comes down to um, part of our discussion earlier with this dichotomy of control. What are the things that are truly valuable? Yeah. The things that are truly valuable mm -hmm. are totally up to us. And those are, you know, our actions, our desires, our aversions, um, and anything that is up to only us. And... Well, once again, like uh, the property here, like your wealth, your your estate, um, your car, your horses, whatever it happens to be, um, are things that are partly not up to your control. And so, if you happen to have them just because you were gifted them via inheritance, um, that has no bearing on like if you even had good prowess as a businessman. But like once mm -hmm. again. Being good at business has externals into it. And so what we're really worried about here is doing good actions to do what the excellent human would do, the virtuous action. You know, and, and Epictetus isn't denying that within their um, domain, you can't compare things next to each other like, you know... Um, for example, grades, right? Students get very obsessed with grades. Oh, I got to get an A, you know? And, um, you know, an A from one professor maybe isn't actually directly comparable to an A from another professor, even though we throw them all into the same big hopper and talk about GPAs and stuff like that, which is kind of artificial. But, you you know, you can compare them against each other. Or let, let's take instead um, – you know, how much money is in somebody's bank account? You can look at a bank account that's got $1,000 in it, and you can look at one that's got $10 million in it, and you can say, well, that $10 million bank account is certainly, you know, many times the magnitude of the of the $1,000. It is superior in the way of being money, but that doesn't mean anything about superiority per se. It doesn't translate into being a better person. It doesn't translate. It doesn't even translate into like being healthier. I mean, you can have a 10 million bucks and, you know, your body's in terrible shape. All these are different domains. As a matter of fact, that reminds me of uh, something that was kind of kind of funny in the music industry. There were all these um, rich guys, and it was mostly guys, a while back that artificially inflated the market for electric guitars because they were all these, um, you know, business types basically, or, you know, doctors or lawyers who'd made, made plenty of money. And they, they, you know, they would buy um, high end guitars, which then jacked the price way up, right. Out, out of the range of a lot of good practicing musicians. And you, you can have the, the great guitar, but, Unless you've actually put in the time and practice and have some musical talent and have a good ear, you're still going to suck. I mean, right. you can play uh, Stairway to Heaven all you want or Smoke on the Water, but, you know, that's not going to get you the, you know, some, some other songs. And um, you're not going to be a good musician, even if you spend lots and lots of money on your, your gear. You'll just be a guy with lots and lots of cool gear that probably should be in the hands of somebody who could actually make use of it, you know. And, and I think we can apply this to just about anything, you know. Right. And herein, we have, you know, what are the things that um, 
you can use these things. Like, yeah, say we have yeah. money or wealth or health here. Um, you know, if you are a, a person making good actions, doing like the uh, the ethically good decision, um, having these externals like this extra wealth will allow you to potentially do more. But right, in the right. opposite, if you are someone that is you know vicious and wants to uh, hurt or mm. put down or or oppress someone, having these things makes it easier for them to do these things. It's kind of a magnifier. Right, yeah. Yeah. If you're familiar with um. Oh, vector math. It's like you have, uh, and this is the the magnitude of this thing, not the the vector. Okay, yeah. the vector is where it's going, right? Um, for for our listeners, yes. Yeah, so we've we've got a unit vector that is you know a value of one. It has a direction, and it's um, but then the magnitude is is applied to it. And so you know, if you've got a lot of money, you can make the good thing really good or a bad thing really bad. And so yeah, they'll 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 talk about um. The a tyrant. If you have a ruler who is a tyrant, um, usually you consider health to be a good, like a universal good. <laughs> but but... You'd like that guy to get sick and die, right? Yeah, yeah. And and there's there's another uh, passage that you picked out that's connected to this uh, chapter six. Don't be elated at any excellence which is not your own. If a horse uh, should say, "I'm beautiful," it would be bearable. But when you get elated and you say i have a beautiful horse know that you're elated about what in fact is only the good of the horse what is your own good the use of impressions or or in in greek fantasia so when you behave consistently with nature and the use of these you should be happy you should be elated for you will be elated about some good of your own and this goes to you know we could talk about virtue in this case do you have any virtues if so be happy but if not, well, then maybe you shouldn't be so happy. And and you see people getting, you know, oh, man, I've got the, the newest game console or I've got the high end uh, tequila or I mean, we could come up with a million. To, I've got this this, you know, uh, really attractive spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or I went to Harvard or, you know, anything you want. You can you can like say you can brag about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But whatever excellence that has, it doesn't translate to you automatically. I mean, I've met a lot of kind of duds from Ivy League schools myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the distribution of like really smart people to really dumb people, it's basically about the same anywhere you go, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Those dang bell curves. Um, so well, I think anything else to say about this one before we, we start wrapping up? Um, the only thing that I could say is like sometimes people misattribute um, the the virtue uh, onto things themselves, mm. and so oh, like you know, uh, we th- we th- we usually just uh, translate virtue as excellence, and so they're like, okay, well, what what is an excellent road, or what is an excellent horse, or something along those lines, yeah. um, and then, and we're trying to talk about this in the virtue sense but like these things are still outside of our own control and uh what we're really worried about is the the excellence of the uh, the human here and and how so do you want to lead us out on some final thoughts so we have our final thoughts here by uh the stoke philosopher epictetus if someone handed over your body to anyone he met along the way you would be angry, but are you not ashamed that you hand over your judgment to anyone who happens to come along?